Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and look at the author's explanation to us of how God's best communication and explanation of Himself is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him in a manner in which we would love Him and appreciate Him. And in many ways, He has spoken through creation, through His prophets, through the examples of the symbols and visions and dreams of the Old Testament. But the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 declares that God's best explanation of Himself He is made through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He'd made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. It is amazing to us to imagine that God sent the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to join us as a member of our race and to explain himself to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's shocking to us in some ways to think that God would be willing to become one of us. We're creatures. He's the creator. We're the ones that rebelled against him. We are the ones that ran away from him. And yet he, in love, wanted to redeem us, and so he sends his son to make provision for him to forgive us our sins. I think sometimes we erroneously imagine that God could have just said, oh, never mind, let's forget it all, and just let go of the offense that sin caused. However, we read in Scripture that That's impossible for him. In his righteousness, in his justice, he demands payment for our sins. And yet the debt that we owe is unpayable in the sense that it would cause our destruction in order to repay him for the sin we have committed. God is not only righteous, not only just, but he is also loving and generous and kind and graceful. And consequently, he was willing to make provision for forgiveness of our sins, but at great cost to himself. It would require 
that he asked the second person of the Trinity to veil his glory, leaving his place in heaven, and joining us as a member of the human race and living alongside us as a true human being. It's amazing for us to imagine. It is beautiful beyond comprehension that God, in the person of his son Jesus Christ, reached out to us in such a way that the Son then explains the Father to us. As it describes here, it says uh, in the times past, he spoke in a variety of ways, and we can think of the various symbols that he used in the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, uh, the Passover lamb, those kinds of symbols, uh, the visions that he gave to various people to communicate the truth, uh, the dreams that he gave to some, the prophets that would speak on his behalf. But now in this New Testament age, because of the gift of his son, uh, he has given us a son who explains himself to us in a way that is truly comprehensible to us. He says in verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory. God's glory that seemed inscrutable to us because he's so vast and different and powerful and because he's a spirit, we can't even see what he looks like. We wonder, how do we relate to you? We sense your love. We, we hear your expression of love through the gift of your son, but how do we relate to you? Jesus Christ reveals the Father to us in the same way that the Son gives off its light. The expression here is not reflected light, but emanating light. Uh, the sun, not the moon. The moon reflects. The sun actually projects its light, and, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shines forth the glory of God. And similarly, uh, though he is human like we are, he is yet without sin. He was born sinless. He was born as Adam was created, a true human being without sin. And in his nature, in his acts, in the way in which he lived his life, he exactly represents to us how God the Father would be if God the Father was able to explain to us how his heart feels, how he would act as he lived among us, Jesus Christ, as a genuine human being, explains the Father to us in his lifestyle. It is the most amazing, most beautiful thing. He is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So at the same time, having been humbled as a man and living humbly as a man, he still upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification for our sins, the main purpose as to why he came to earth was to make it possible for the Father to redeem us by taking our place on the cross and paying our penalty for us. 
then the father demonstrates his acceptance of the son's sacrifice by raising him from the dead and then by bringing him back into heaven and sitting him down at the right hand of majesty on high. He truly has allowed us the best look as to what God is like. Throughout the stories of the Bible, we find beautiful descriptions of Jesus Christ saying, you want to know what the Father is like? Look at me. I am God himself come, having added to my deity humanity. I am God in the flesh. Turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 10 and notice as the Jews are sensing that Jesus is making a claim to be the promised Messiah, and they're saying, can you just say it out loud? You keep demonstrating it for us, but can you just verbalize it for us? Would you tell us, please, plainly, are you the Christ? This is John chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 and following. The Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. And then he appeals to his actions. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep, meaning you're not one of the Old Testament saints who's already gained relationship with God by faith in him. He said, if you were of my sheep, you would have recognized me. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You can recognize the voice of God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, as I call out my sheep, as I call out these Old Testament saints that had a relationship with the Father, they hear my voice, they recognize me, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Speaking spiritually, using the figurative expression of how shepherds care for actual real sheep, he's saying, I protect my own, I care for them, I will not lose a single one of them. Though wolves may seek to attack, not one of these sheep will be snatched out of my hand. Then listen to what he says next, verse 29. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In the English, we can't tell that this was written in the neuter. He's not saying they are one in the sense that they're the same person. They are one in the sense that they share the same entity, the essence of that which is God, and they are one in purpose in which they are seeking to achieve. This is God himself in the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who's added to his deity humanity, who is now saying, you want to know the Father? You're seeing what God the Father is like in all of my actions, in all of my teachings. 
I am demonstrating God to you. I and the Father are one. Whereas the passage opened them saying, just tell us plainly if you're the Christ. He just told them plainly, and they picked up stones to stone him because they were rejecting him as the promised Messiah, believing that he had just blasphemed against them. Turn a few pages to the right to John chapter 14, in which Jesus is explaining to his own disciples that because he's been rejected, he is going to withdraw his offer of setting up the kingdom now, he will return in a second coming and set up his kingdom then because he will return to a repentant Israel who cries out for the Messiah whom they've pierced and asks the Messiah to rescue them from their enemies. This is John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know where I'm going. And Thomas interrupts and says, slow down. If we're going to follow you, you're going to have to be more specific. I'm getting confused here. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, what have I been teaching all along? I am the way. In other words, to have relationship with me is the security of knowing you will always be with me. I'm not abandoning you. I'm coming back for you to take you to be with me. You don't need to follow me. I'm returning. I will take you to be with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I will take you home, and you will be with me forever. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Profound words. They are relating to their dear friend, the person for whom they've given up their occupations and left their families at home, and have now lived with him for several years. And he is saying, do you not understand God the Father now? Do you not understand what God is like? Do you not understand God through me? To know me is to know the Father. You're asking, how would I know God? What would God be like What would God act like in a certain situation? I'm telling you, how have I acted? Have you not seen the works that I have done? Have you not seen how I have acted? Have you not seen the choices I've made? This is God approaching you in the person of a human being. I am God come in the flesh. Philip, still not getting it, saying like, Just show us the Father. It'll be enough. Just let us have a glimpse of him. How do you glimpse that which is a spirit? A spirit is by nature invisible. If he were to 
appear in any way. It'd only be an apparition. You remember, for example, a bush that's on fire with Moses. You remember Moses saw a burning bush and turned aside and God spoke to him, but all he saw was a bush. He's not seeing God himself. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In adult meetings like this, where the kids are out in, in a different meeting, uh, we often take on uh, harder subjects. Hebrews is a harder book. Uh, Hebrews 1 uh, is a harder subject. And yet, in, in some ways, we're missing out in the simplicity of being in a Sunday school class in which we are explaining things as simply uh, as we can so that the children understand. In some ways, they have an advantage for us because we explain God to them in the person of Jesus Christ. We tell them stories of Jesus. And the lesson they learn about the story of Jesus is an expression of God's character. How would God act in this situation? What would God do? What would God say? And because it's a person in the story, they can relate to a real-life person saying these things, doing these things, and they understand because they understand Jesus. This is where we make it, in a sense, too complicated for us. Let's hear the writer to the Hebrews trying to help his readers who would rather worship angels than worship Jesus to say, do you not understand that God's best explanation of himself is his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we would say to ourselves, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Then we're speaking correctly. Then we are saying, I'm now understanding what God would have me do because I can understand what Jesus would do in this situation. Sometimes we say, well, the reason I didn't know how to act, the reason why I didn't know what to do is because God didn't speak to me. It's easier for us in some ways to say, well, what would Jesus have said? Well, what would Jesus have done? How would Jesus have acted in this situation? It helps us, in a sense, purify our own misconceptions as we say, well, I know what he would do. I love boats and I love water. So turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. And one of my, my favorite stories is the disciples crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee. And a storm comes up and they think they're going to die. This is Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. It's one of my favorite stories as to what would Jesus do during the storm. Mark 4:35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, "Let's go to the other side." And it's, it's true, they regularly were traversing the Sea of Galilee, and this is uh, nothing unusual. A lot of them were already fishermen and spent their lives out on the Sea of Galilee. They knew it well. There was a problem that 
The hills that surrounded the Sea of Galilee allowed a compression. When the winds would race down off the hills, they would make terrible waves and storms that would come up very quickly. It's much what we're experiencing these next three days, where the wind coming off the desert comes over the mountains, falls down into this valley, compresses, and that's why we're going to have 100-degree temperatures is because of the rushing wind coming in. Same thing happened on the Sea of Galilee. So they leave the crowd, and they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with them. So picture this. Jesus is with them in the boat, and a, and a fleet of other fishing boats are crossing to the other side. Verse 37, And arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, it doesn't get much worse than this, in which uh, the height of your gunnels are low enough that the waves are crashing over, and you can't even bail fast enough because the water is coming in faster than you would bail. And you realize this ship is going down. This storm is so terrific, we're going to have difficulty surviving. Listen how Mark tells the story. And Mark is getting his story from Peter uh, who we know was an excellent and experienced fisherman. Verse 38 says, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. That's a real human being for you. That's exactly what people do. I can remember in my dad's boat, I'd get bored and I'd lay down on a cushion, I'd fall asleep. Just the, the rocking of the boat was enough to let me sleep. I, I was completely relaxed in his boat. I didn't have to be seen over the edge. I could, uh, even if he was traveling a distance and we were bouncing up and down, I could still fall asleep on a pillow. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do during the storm? Exactly what he's doing. He's in the stern with his head on a cushion, asleep. The waves are crashing over the side. Can you picture what's happening here? They're saying, we're going to die. Yet Jesus is with them. Is Jesus going to go down with the ship? Is Jesus going to drown? You would think like, no. No, he wouldn't. And yet, listen to how they wake him up. Have you ever been woken up by someone who's frightened and is uh, startling you? It's not a pleasant way of waking up. They startled him saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Just think of how that's worded. How dare you fall asleep? How dare you not protect us? We are terribly frightened. We're about to die. It's obvious you don't care. Isn't that what they're saying? It's obvious you don't care. Few of us dare to pray this way to God, but many of us think this of God through many of our trials. And we say, do you not know that I'm perishing? Do you not know that I'm dying inside? Do you not know that I'm mad? Do you not know that you're hurting me? Do you not know what's happening in my life? But there's this vivid picture in my mind of the human being, Jesus, asleep, not even worried about this at all. There is a physical picture of God in the God-man, asleep in the boat of our life, while the storm is tossing all around us, relaxed. Because he knows the outcome. 
because he's not afraid. And too many of us focus on the circumstances rather than our God. And that we don't imagine that he knows or he cares or that he's providing. And we imagine that we're going to be destroyed. Do you not care? You think of memory verses. We need to memorize some negative verses. We need to memorize some verses so that we can taunt ourselves if we ever catch ourselves saying something like this. So we'd say, like, I remember that memory verse. Do you not care that we are perishing? (laughs) Listen to his answer. He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, hush, be still. The wind died down, it became perfectly calm, and then he turns to him. Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? So if we're going to add to our memory verse, we're not only going to memorize, do you not care that we're perishing, but we need to also memorize, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Well, that's reproving. That helps us understand that God wants us, even in the storms, to trust him all the way through to the end and to allow him to have his way with us, to allow him to stretch us. It's not so much that he's being mean to us. It's that he's teaching us how to relax in him. And he's doing exactly what he ought to do. He's doing what we should be doing. He is teaching us the lesson of relying on God and his protection, his provision, all the way through the experience. And then they become even more afraid because there's something more fearful than being in a storm in which you think you might sink. They said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Could this be God himself? I think at this point in their experience, they have already decided he's the promised Messiah. I think they're growing to understand that this promised Messiah is more than just a man. This is God in the flesh. This has to be God, because how can you speak to a storm like this and it become calm immediately and then say to us, don't you have faith? Who is this that even the wind and the sea would obey him? Go back now to Hebrews chapter 1, and let's continue to look at what the writer to the Hebrews is saying about why we want to pay attention to Jesus and why he would ask us to exalt him and not exalt other things. He says in Hebrews 1 verse 2, In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, meaning that all of creation actually belongs to him and will be given to him and he will rule over it, through whom also he made the world. Many of us have just assumed it was God the Father who made the world. Actually, all three members of the Trinity were involved. The Spirit is mentioned right there in Genesis 1, verse 2. But the agent who carried out the Father's will in the creation as the Father speaks it into existence, he says, it's through the agency of Jesus Christ that the world was made. He has lordship over all of history. 
And then it goes on to speak of his divine attributes, saying, if you want to see God, God radiates from the person of Jesus Christ. He is the manifestation of God to us. He is the exact representation of his nature. He's the embodiment of the divine essence in a way in which we can see him. John goes further in 1 John where he says, I've handled him, I touched him, he's real, he's not an apparition. He's not a ghost, he's a real person. I know that. He is the embodiment of the divine essence. And he is the one who is upholding all of the world by the word of his power. He is governing the universe. And this is the one who was willing to make purification for our sins, to be humbled to the point that he allowed us to reject him. And as we were destroying him, God used that as the time at which he would take all of our sins and all of his wrath towards sin and pour that out on his son, Jesus Christ. And he would become the propitiation for our sins. He would extinguish and satisfy God's wrath towards sin as he died paying our penalty. And God would demonstrate this by bringing him all the way home and sitting him at his right hand on the majesty on high, allowing him to be visibly glorified before all of creation. And then, speaking to the problem of his readers, he says, and how does that compare to your fascination with worshiping angels? It's funny that we live in the suburbs of a city called the City of Angels. And why would they name it the City of Angels? Because I thought it was such a beautiful place. It must be where angels would dwell. What is it that causes us to have such a fascination with creatures created by God, which angels are, servants of God, messengers of God, that would distract us from worshiping God himself? What is it about us as human beings? Do you remember when people would fall before Peter and John or fall before Paul and begin to worship these apostles as if they were gods himself. The miracles that were taking place, they were saying like, this must be God, I must worship him. And they're going like, no, get up, get up. I'm just a human being like you are. Don't worship me. Worship the God who has the power to do these things. He says in verse 4, regarding having achieved status at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's speaking here of his acquired messianic sonship at the time of his resurrection and ascension. Verse 5, for to which of his angels did he ever say, and then he quotes from Psalm 2, one of the coronation psalms of the Davidic kings, you are my son." Today I have begotten you. In the Old Testament picture of God's rulership through the king over Israel, at the coronation of the king, speak of David or Solomon, God would adopt that king as a son-like person in relationship to him and rule through him. Picturing that, 
quoting from Psalm 2, saying that this applies much more to Jesus Christ than it ever did to David or Solomon. He says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And again, quoting from 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant and the promises that through David, the kingdom would last forever. He says, and again, I'll be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, this is Psalm 97, let all the angels of God worship him. So God will enthrone his son as the Davidic king on the earth, and angels will turn to him and worship him appropriately. So why do we distract ourselves with worshiping creatures that are so far less than God himself? I think most of us are happy that the Dodgers are in the World Series. <clears throat> My son-in-law is from Houston, Texas originally, and so he disappointed me and told me he's going to be rooting for the other team. But there are friends of mine who talk far more enthusiastically that actually know more about baseball than they know about God. And I mean that, literally. They could talk endlessly about a sport, but have a skin-deep interest in spiritual things. And it's absolutely important for us to understand in the gradation of things how creatures are not worthy of being worshipped. Yeah, it's kind of fun to have some memorabilia with a signature on it, but are you going to display that at the altar in your home as if this has become a shrine where you worship? No. We have to understand our priorities and understand that it's God the Father that we are worshiping and His Son, Jesus Christ, who's achieved this for us. Verse 7 Quoting from Psalm 104, he says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, in the sense that they're swift, and his ministers a flame of fire, as if they are strong. But in verse 8, of the sun, he says, Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's applying this to his son at the second coming, in which he will receive that throne and rule forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He will rule righteously. It's hard to turn on the news because there's so much unrighteousness in the way in which our government rules. We want a righteous government. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And we realize this is what we want of the Son. We want the one who will establish God's rulership on earth, the one who will rule as it should have been ruled. Then quoting from Psalm 102 in verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Notice that he's the creator. Angels are just creatures. They will perish but you remain, and they will all become like an old garment, like a mantle, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same. God never changes. He's eternal. He's immutable. 
and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, this is Psalm 110, that ascension and glorification psalm in which they sang as they came into worship at the time of the Passover. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God is going to place all of God's enemies beneath Jesus Christ. The picture is of a, a conqueror who would put his foot on the back of the neck of the person that he has conquered. And he's saying, I will subdue your enemies and you will rule over them. And then turning finally to the angels one last time, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, angels are mere servants, and yes, they aid the Son in delivering His people into the coming kingdom, and yes, they serve us, and yes, some of them are assigned to us to protect us and to care for us and to guide us. They serve us, but someday we will judge angels. So why would we worship them when we have right before us Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, the one worthy of worship, the one worthy of our attention. Though we don't struggle much in this day and age in the worship of angels, uh, it hasn't been part of our culture. We do struggle with distraction of viewing so many things around us as so much more important than focusing on God. In our culture in America, we are focused on entertainment and on enjoying ourselves and making sure that we're comfortable. The example I gave you in the story of the boats out there in the Sea of Galilee in which the storm came indicates that God is not nearly as interested in our enjoyment, our entertainment, and our comfort as we are. And no, he's not mean to us either. He wasn't going to drown Jesus' disciples in the Sea of Galilee. They were going to survive. That was clearly demonstrated by Jesus asleep with his head on the pillow. They were going to make it through. Jesus wasn't worried. Why should they be worried? It's interesting how our children when they think maybe they should be scared, look into the faces of their parents to see how their parents are reflecting fear. And if we re reflect confidence and a sense of calm, our kids pick that up and they go like, I guess I don't need to be afraid. My mom and dad aren't afraid. I don't need to be afraid either. Let's not be distracted, whether it be by angels or by, in our culture, pleasure, comfort and enjoyment. But let's say what is most important in life? It is to know and to love God. As he shines his love upon us, as he has forgiven us, may we shine back a reflection of our love, our appreciation, our joy that our God 
loves us so much that though we should be saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We say, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for extending your grace to me. Oh, how I want to worship and exalt you as my God and my Savior. Oh, Father, we come before you and we thank you for the revelation that we have found in your word regarding the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who has so beautifully explained you to us. Oh, Father, we thank you that you did not destroy us, but out of grace and mercy, you made provision for your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior and to make payment on our behalf, paying our debt and allowing us to receive that as a gift and then to have a relationship with you. Oh, Father, we praise you. We thank you for the love that you have shown us. Help us, therefore, to know you all the better as we study your son, Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.